I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry, not ours, and we pray his spirit to be with you and us tonight, our volunteers, whatever, but we have a very special guest and her daughter here. I'm gonna let you introduce yourself. This is... Sarafina Lucero. Serafina Lucera, Lucero. Lucero, I live in Kearns. She lives in Kearns. Mm -hmm. She is 93, 92. 93 this week. 93 this week. When's your birthday? June 13, 1921. Uh, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> you know what? We, uh, I said, would someone like to say the prayer? She <laughs> threw her hand up. I would like to say the prayer. And she just said, I want to do it. So you know what, we usually pray a little bit later, but would you pray, for, open us up with prayer for all our audience right now? Say the prayer again, Lord. Dear Lord, bless this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you so much, Servina. Thank you for being on the show and your beautiful daughter. Thank you. All right. Got an email this morning, it said something that is anathematic to the human soul. It said, your show is boring. Uh, in a day and age where validation and empire building are, uh, you know, it's everything. That statement has an ability to kind of hurt, doesn't it? No one wants to be boring. Uh, to be boring puts you on a train to obsolescence so to speak. And so we want more accolades, we want more attention, not less. And so this is certainly true in the world of high finance and big business, it's true in the arts, in the Hollywood, more and more and more, not less and less and less. But unfortunately, it's also true, uh, this uh, quanti quantity uh, deal in Christianity. For a pastor or a Christian teacher, it's a death knell to be called boring. 
No one wants to be called boring, and we gotta keep everyone excited and frothy, and uh, it's the only way to survive. So we appeal to the salacious, the dramatic, the emotive, the terrifying. You know, Jesus is coming. Look at the camera. You better be ready. He's coming any moment. You better be ready. And that gets, that keeps things going and getting bigger and bigger. And whatever works at garnering the most response, the greatest popularity, the most monetary success, we will keep that and validate our efforts by calling it fruit. It's bearing fruit. Uh, we assure ourselves by this, believing that bigger is better and that somehow the applause of man and numerical success is synonymous with the approbation of God. Uh, and in the end, people in ministry end up doing anything and everything to remain relevant and to remain popular, et cetera, et cetera. I get this. Uh, I used to care very much about producing a television show that was not boring, that got everybody's attention, that people would tune in every week. And it was from the heart and it worked to some extent. And that's why we did Heart of the Matter the way we did all those years when we were on TV locally is to not have guests and to sit there and drone on and on and on over just talk that doesn't accomplish much and doesn't really say anything. And at that time we were doing, we believed what God called us to do. But if we have learned anything from the gospels of Jesus Christ, if we've learned anything from the uh, apostolic writings of what the apostles went through, um, there is no way we could continue and justify the model that we used to use. The very essence of being a spirit-filled Christian is to be willing to change and to adapt and to grow and mature, not remain where you started. And this is one of the problems I have with church and the way that it's been constructed is because when a pastor comes up with a church vision and that works, they'll do that church vision for 40 years because it works, but they never progress and grow where they discard things from the past and embrace new things. And so it's really problematic, in my opinion, to what we see in scripture. I mean, look at Peter. He started off being quite the bombastic, uh, quite arrogant apostle, love Peter, and then he became humbled and he grew and changed as he went. Look at the Lord himself. He grew in wisdom and stature, we read in Hebrews, learning obedience by the things he suffered. And as he entered into his life's work, you notice that Jesus was first accepted greatly and that he was thronged by many who followed him. And I'm sure it was an exciting time. He went to, his first miracle was at a wedding where he turned water into the finest wine, the best wine. And the party was there and, and people followed him. The, the governor of the feast said, we usually keep the, uh, serve the best wine first, but you've saved the best wine till last, you know? And it, but as Jesus progressed toward the cross, we see that his popularity waned to the point where uh, we read in John that when he introduced the communion about taking, eating, this is my body, it says, and many left him from that point forward. And then we see that he, at the end, I mean, he starts off like this and it goes like this. And eventually it gets to the point where he's hanging on a cross between two thieves all alone. And we follow him. He is our savior. He is our Messiah. And he has given us the model of what the Christian life looks like. 
and yet I don't see that very much, that we wanna become less and, and kind of whittle it down. Listen very carefully, every true follower, I believe, hard to hear, every true follower of him will experience the same thing in their life. He is the model. We look to him to see how it's done. There's no way around it. Let me go to the board really quickly. We're using the whiteboard a little bit more. Let me go to the board really quickly and give you an illustration of this if I can. It looks... Um, this is, we'll just say this is uh, the, this, the hallway or the pathway to the Christian life. And we will say this is the point of rebirth, okay? And so what we do is we have a man standing here, and this is as tall as, as this height here is the, the maximum height you can have in your Christian walk. And this is your Christian walk going this way, okay? What we have happen is this is rebirth and this is the natural man. This is the man who still operates by his flesh, okay? He has just been reborn. He's just come to know Jesus, so he's a babe in Christ. And this is what the model looks like, okay? So as this Christian, this natural man who operates by his flesh has just been reborn, he moves in this direction, this man gets smaller and smaller in his flesh. And this is his spirit. And it's very small to begin with. And as he continues to go, you can see that as this man of the flesh shrinks, this man of the spirit grows. And so more and more till you are in the full figure of Christ here at the time of the end of your sojourn. This is the Christian model. I mean, we, we, we sometimes think that we, it begins and ends here. Oh, I've come to know Jesus, saved by grace through faith. That is not what the Bible says. It says that we are to die to this guy and that we are to live by this guy. And it takes time for this spirit person, man or woman, to grow to their full stature, you see? And so, emailer, uh, we have to admit, God did once place this ministry in a place to have great fun, uh, great television fun. We had our days of turning water into wine and of parties and of large groups of people following the ministry. But we have grown in spirit now. And those days, as we've matured, have, we've become less and less popular. And come hell or high water, we're gonna pursue this course, boring or not. Okay, so we had a couple articles given to me of late. This is from Russ, it's from the newspaper. It says, womanhood, a work in progress. What was interesting to Russ is that it's about a mother of the year who's LDS, they have a picture here of everybody at, outside an LDS temple being sealed. But the thing that caught his attention, he highlighted, he says, this quote is from the mother of the year. It says, for me, church and family are everything. That's what matters most. That's the highlighted uh, segment from uh, quotation. Now, I have a question for you. What would you say matters most? Would you say church? If you do, I would suggest you change that. 
Nobody, no church has ever gotten anybody into heaven. Jesus Christ gets somebody into heaven. So this is part of the argument against the LDS stance is that church has placed itself as an intermediary between God and man. Man, the church, God. And that is not what Jesus has suggested from the get-go. Jesus says, come to me. He's the intermediator, uh, the mediator between God and man, not church. And so it seems like, well, that's no big deal. They might be talking about church being representing Christ, so to speak, and they do sometimes use that, but it isn't right because it's not a church. It's not the brick and mortar building. That's the first thing that came up. The second thing is an article that I got and I gave it to Reed and he promised he would return it today and he, he didn't. Uh, just kidding. Uh, anyway, this article is all about the hemorrhaging of the LDS church and it's citing inside stories and from leaders, and they're saying, listen, uh, the church is losing members, the LDS church is losing members in the boatloads. They are, pe people are getting online, they're learning all about the history, and they're leaving the church in droves. And the article goes on and on, it cites all these anonymous sources, etc. Well, with all this hemorrhaging supposedly happening within the LDS face, I wanna know where everybody's going. Where are all the LDS people going? I care about these sheep, having been one of them for 40 years, this flock. And it makes me sick to meet people who let the LDS church scorch their heart and make them say, if the LDS church isn't true, then no church is true. And they completely uh, lose heart for God. I have an email here. This is from Sandra. Uh, L, it says, I need your help. I have been a Mormon my entire life. My family goes back to Brigham Young polygamy. I know the Mormon church is false, exclamation point, but now I am lost and I don't know what to believe. Help me. I stumbled upon your YouTube channel and you seem like the only person who can help me. I'm not. I'm uh, almost going towards atheism. This is, this is not an aberration. We get emails and have gotten emails like this for eight years weekly from people who say, I've left the Mormon church, I no longer believe in God because the Mormon church made me believe it's the only true church on the face of the earth, I've seen what they've done to me, I don't believe in God anymore. I was on my LDS mission in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania with a young LDS missionary named Carl. Carl lives in Utah now. He was a fantastic LDS missionary, he was a good, clean living kid, really liked Carl, and a few years ago I got a call from him and he said, you know, I've been watching your show and Slowly, he and his wife came to see the truth about Mormonism. He's dead, scorched earth, no heart for God. So we have to ask ourselves, how can we reach these people? What are we going to do to help them come out? How can we reach the Carls of the LDS faith? Let me tell you right here and now, we're not gonna catch the majority of them with more religious tradition. We will not catch them with another church system where uh, they walk in the door and the pastor puts them in programs and gets them working their brains out again and paying their tithes again and putting them under a yoke of bondage. As long as the churches in this state are putting people back in bondage, we are never gonna appeal to them. We have to appeal to them to the grace and the freedom and the liberty that Christ Jesus brings that makes people want to freely help or not, and they're free to do that, okay? And with that, how about a moment from the Word?
and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, all, excuse me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I trust in this promise and this invitation of Jesus Christ. Coming out of Mormonism, I too experienced the heavy yoke of religious demands. And one of the greatest joys of coming to know Jesus after a roadside experience more than 14 years ago, I have found that having a personal, unencumbered, direct relationship with him is, is worth more than all the riches of the world, is worth more than any solace I could get from drugs, alcohol, wine, women, or song. It is everything, the hope, the faith, the security in him. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I, I, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am so convinced personally of the absolute validity of his words that anything and anyone that makes his words untrue are automatically rejected in my mind. I don't know about yours. Would you agree? I mean, if Jesus tells us to come to him, if we've been laboring and we are heavy laden and he will give us rest, what should believers think of religious men and women and their institutions who try and suggest that we need to labor for them? or we need to be burdened again with heavy burdens. Shouldn't we run from something like that? Think about it. We are telling LDS people that they need to come out from the bondage of Mormonism because it is so demanding, because they have to prove their worthiness over and over again, only to lead them through the doors of supposedly Christian churches that are doing exactly the same thing in just a different way. It's just a different culture. No different. You've got to attend our meetings. You've got to become a member of our church. You've got to pay our tithes. You've got to really help us with our building fund. You've got to volunteer at this social. You've got to come and attend because we need, we need, we need. Remember when Jesus went to the synagogue and stood he opens the Old Testament, the Bible to them, and he reads from Isaiah. What did he say? Isaiah prophesying of what Jesus would do. Remember the passage, Isaiah 61.1. This is what he said in part. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim captivity to the captives. Oops, no. <laughs> to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. He was talking about people trapped in religion. And yet we keep playing church. We keep doing the church game. We're never going to be ready to receive the LDS or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Muslims until the pastors make Jesus uh, the reality in people's lives and be there to support people in their faith and not burden them with their programs and demands. And with that, we are going to move on into our topic for tonight, which is a continued discussion on soteriology. All right? So I got to erase this board really quickly. Wendy, somebody, uh, I need something to clear this board because this eraser won't do it. All right, last week, we discussed the two major ways that Christianity sees salvation and the salvation experience. Do you remember? <clears throat> we said that, um, basically we broke it down like this. Calvinism and Arminianism. So, Calvinism, Arminianism, two isms. And we talked about the questions that they answered. And the first one is choosing God. How the Calvinists say man chooses God and how Arminius say man chooses God. God's call or God's election, they call it. And we talked about uh, um, Christ's atonement. Larry, I'm sorry for the handwriting. And we talked about, can a man or woman resist God? And then we talked about um, salvation, uh, uh, once saved, always saved. And the question of that. Okay? And we said, as we talked, we gave the answers, and I'm just going to just quickly write them out on the board. Calvinism says that God does all the choosing that man is totally depraved, spiritually. Doesn't mean he can't do good things. Ar Arminianists say that man has the capacity to choose, to listen to God. Calvinists say there's no choosing whatsoever. That, that God picks and appoints, and that's it. If he doesn't pick and appoint, then you're not a believer. You'll never will be a believer because God has not picked you. Arminius say, no, God calls to all. Everybody has the capacity to, in themselves, a spiritual capacity to choose God, all right? And then when it comes to God's election, who does God elect? Calvinists say there's an unconditional election and that means that when God chooses, that's it. He's done it. And the Arminius say there's a conditional election. Man has to believe by his free will. Moving along, Christ's atonement, the Calvinists say that it's a limited atonement, that Christ only suffered for those who God chose. He did not suffer for the sins of the world. Arminius say, Universal atonement. Okay, and then can a man or woman resist God? 
Calvinists say never. That when God points his finger at his chosen elect, they cannot resist that he is sovereign. That's the big word in Calvinism. And when he points, there's no free will. Calvinists do not believe there's any free will. And so when he points, a man or woman says, I believe, and that's it. And, and of course, the Arminius say, yes, you can resist. And then once saved, always saved. Once God has pointed, man cannot resist that. Calvinists say, listen, once saved, always saved. Absolutely yes. God, he points and you can't resist it. And that's it. I'm going to move this. I think, do I need to move it? Because I'm going to go down a little bit lower. All right. And of course, Arminius say, no. If you don't abide in the vine, you can walk or lose your salvation. All right. Let's talk about what I said was how I believe what scripture says. And I, I just call it X. We don't want another ism or ist. We don't want this to be anything but just some thoughts. First things first. In fact, let me give you an example, okay? Let me, let's just use this as an example. Let me give you three situations. A child is born in India to the lowest caste family there, a little girl. She is raised in abject poverty. At 13, she becomes a prostitute at the hand of her father. And at 19, contracts AIDS and at 23, dies. Not a believer, never heard the name Jesus, didn't ever feel appointed by God, didn't feel, or whatever. What happens to her according to Calvinism? What happens to her according to Arminianism, okay? A young man is born into a Christian home where his pastor father, um, mistreats him and he grows up hating God and Christ and he never comes to Christ. He falls away, so to speak. He believes he had faith, but walks from it and never comes back. What does Calvin say? What does Arminius, Arminianism say? A set of twins are born in a typical church, going household, love caring parents, given all the basic privileges of American life, let's say. And one finds the Lord or the Lord finds her and the other rejects all of Christianity and becomes a Buddhist. Okay, three scenarios. Calvinism in every one of those scenarios where a person did not come to know the Lord, that person goes to hell forever and burns forever in that punishing place. That's exactly what it is, okay? There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's the, the Calvinistic determination. And the thing about it is, is God could have picked the Indian girl who was the prostitute and elected her and given her the spirit, but he did not of his own goodwill and choosing. These are not hypothetical situations that don't have merit. They're exactly how it plays out in the systemology and the uh, theology of Calvinism and Arminianism. Because man can choose, the same happens here with the Ar Arminius, because the ball is in their court, the ball here is in God's court, but either way, the people who did not come to know 
uh, God go to hell, and I'm talking about a burning hell, and I'm not talking about the lake of fire forever. Now, unconditional election. Uh, we have to, if you look at Calvinism, if you look at Arminianism, if you look at Mormonism, they all fail because Calvinism and Arminianism does not allow God to be just and merciful and fair and loving. Calvinism and Arminianism would say, we all deserve to burn in hell forever, so he is fair, he is just. His mercy came in sending his son. Those who have not received his son in Arminianism will go forever. Those who were not elected to receive his son will go forever. And so it goes on and on and on. Mormonism steps outside of biblical authority and says they get another chance. The woman in India dies and she goes to spirit prison and she waits there for the LDS missionaries to come and teach her. She has the opportunity to hear the gospel there receive Mormon baptism by proxy and Mormon temple endowments by proxy and then move on into the celestial kingdom. They use that as kind of a hook to play upon people's logic and reason saying, well, that seems more fair than the Christian way. But I would suggest to you there's another Christian way. There's a way that has been completely ignored and it's completely biblical. And it shows a way that we should be considering and that's what we're gonna talk about right now, the, the other way. So first things first. Modern Christian soteriology, the soteriological ideas begin with a false premise in my opinion. And it's the idea that God is angry, that, God, uh, that man is fallen, and that destruction and annihilation awaits if either God doesn't choose a person, Calvinism, or if a person doesn't choose God, Arminianism go back, 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 and we are faced with the question of this. Why did God, who knows all things, he understands everything beginning to end before he created one thing, he knew the outcome, why did God create us in the first place if he knew the outcome? Why did he do that? Now, uh, Calvinists say he's God, he does what he wills and for his good pleasure, and since we are all deserving of eternal punishment and in burning fire, then that's just the way it goes. Does that sound like a loving God to you who John describes as love, God is love? It's nonsensical to me. At the same time, if God knows all things before creating us, and at the same time is love, and is, and is uh, merciful and wants all to come to him. And the Arminius says, we have to choose. And the Arminius agrees that few do. We're in the same spot. God giving man free choice still knew that most men would not choose him. And so he created them for hell. That's the only way you can reason through these things. And these are the two major stances that Christianity has propagated out there. And we've glommed onto it as an us versus them mentality. Well, I've been saved. They're going to hell. I, oh, I've, and, and we kind of rejoice in it. We, we kind of think, well, they're going to get theirs forever in hell. You know, 
good neighbor next door to me who is, you know, he, he lives a very good life. He's faithful to his wife. He's good to his kids. He provides. He does his job. He doesn't lie much. He's all, we're all sinners. But, I mean, he's, he's trying, and he just, he just doesn't accept. He's going to burn forever in hell, forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's at the hands of a just and loving God. It does not make sense. And we are not going to be able to have any inroads with the LDS and other logical people if we take the, continue to take these stances. Okay, so what do, how can we see it? So let's go to them. Depravity, number one. Right here, X, depravity, choosing God. I would suggest this. Because of the fall, man, fallen man is completely uninterested in God. There is nothing in us that we would want anything to do with God. So God, he reveals himself through nature, through the cosmos, through our conscience. He reveals himself through all these different ways, seven different ways where he writes his law in word. He writes his law on preacher's mouths. He writes his law on his son who came and lived and died. He keeps giving us all these signals that he is there. If he didn't do that, we would be insensate. We would never, ever try to choose him. There's nothing good in us because we're fallen. So I would say that instead of being totally depraved and that we can choose, I would say that man has an insensate nature. And God is calling in many different ways. So we'll call that the I. All right, God's elections. Uh, election's a big one, all right? Go with me really quickly and listen. How do we balance election out? Calvinists say God does his good will, period. Why wouldn't his will be the reconciliation of everybody and point out everybody if he does the choosing instead of just a few to go to heaven? Why wouldn't God who has love pick everybody instead of just a few? I wanna know that. Calvin say he elects whom he will, but I wanna know why it's only a few. Now, but Arminius say, that man is free to choose, but if God is sovereign and knows the majority are not gonna choose him and he creates them anyway, he has in effect created them for hell too. We're in no different way, place or difference between Calvinism and Arminianism when it comes to election. Whether he's picking a few people or most people don't choose him, either way you look at it, most are hell bound and going away. I would suggest something else. I would, I would suggest that when it comes to election, based on his sovereign foreknowledge, God elects all and brings all to him by different means and different ways. Some through their free will, those are those who choose him. They are sons and daughters of God who escape the second death and become joint heirs with Christ, his son. Others based on free will resistance to faith, he has elected to hell. He realizes that them going to the dark place, that's not a burning place, he goes to the dark place of woe and remorse, they will go there and they will reflect, and by that measure, he will bring them to himself, and some still, due to their recalcitrant, ugly, gross nature, he elects to the lake of fire. He knows that's what they have chosen. The lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels, is there. They will be cast into it. And there they will, in my opinion, lose his, their soul. But in the end, God 
will victoriously reconcile all to himself, some as sons and daughters, some as not, but all his. So election, I would say that it is, um, uh, it is uh, foreknown election. He knew all of it. He knew what to do to bring all to him. Some were going to, by virtue of their free will, choose the right, and some were not, but he will be victorious. Satan will not beat him at his game. Man will not beat him. He is sovereign, as the Calvinists say, and he will overcome, and he will win all back to him. Some coming back with, Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? There's gonna be souls lost, but the soul is the mind, will, and emotion of an individual. And they will come back as, we won't recognize them. They will be just, just completely burned out people who have been given life, but they will not be sons and daughters of Christ who accepted him by faith in this life, okay? So we've gone to depravity, we've gone to election. Who has Jesus redeemed? Christ's atonement, is it limited? In the Calvinistic Arminianist debate, I think Calvinism represents a really good point here. Think about this. When it says there's a limited atonement, okay? Would a fair and just and merciful God subject his only begotten son to the pain and payment for sin of the entire world knowing that few would accept it? Would his son be suffering for the sins of the entire world when God foreknows that most are not going to take advantage of it? There's the question for you. And so what it does is it gives us reason why Calvinists would say there's a limited atonement. God has foreknowledge, he knows who he's sovereign, he elects, and only those he's elected did Christ suffer for, okay? So Arminius' stance on universal atonement is faulty since it agrees most will reject the atonement and this would make Jesus' suffering for them meaningless. It would be, it would be um, suffering for suffering's sake and God would have his son paying for the sins of people who are not going to uh, receive him in the first place. That's not a just God. But Calvinism's stance on limited atonement, in my opinion, is not biblical. It's not biblical at all. Um, put it this way. If the atonement of Christ is universal, like the Bible says, and the Bible says it is, he paid for the sins of the whole world, then the only result under the hands of a sovereign God who is just would be the total reconciliation of the whole world in some way or another. It would have to be for him to, to put his son through it. If his son paid for the sins of the whole world, then somehow he's gonna bring the whole world around back to him. If his son's only paid for the sins of those he elected, fine. But that's not what the Bible says. So we have to stick with what the text says and not step outside of it to make our little theories meet. And that's what I believe Calvinism does when it comes to limited atonement. Listen, Jesus was huge on the harvest. Even when he fed the masses, he said, hey, to his apostles, go out and collect all the leftovers, get everything so nothing be lost. In the Old Testament, when they would glean the fields, they would not let any fruit, any fruit that laid on the ground, they would pick it up and use it. They were extremely economical and extremely environmentally savvy. Jesus did not want waste. He didn't like the waste. And he was always out trying to gather it all up. That's the same picture for human beings. If he'll do it with bread and fish that he's reproduced, he's gonna do it with man, okay? The next one, K, 
Can God's call be resisted? Uh, look it. I can't say anything, but of course it can. But God will be victorious, okay? In the interchange between sovereign God and the free will of man, God can be resisted. We resist him all the time. To say that he can't is, look at the story of Jonah. Look at the story of Job, who was tested. I mean, of course he can be resisted. And all the writings of the apostles in the early church events this. Whomever falls upon Christ, the rock will be broken. That's the free will. Whomever the, the rock falls will be crushed to powder. That's God then in, in, in getting in and doing it his way. We have our choice. We can be humble and break upon him, or we can let him fall on us and crush us to powder in, uh, in what I would believe is the lake of fire. Any, either way, it's gonna happen where God will have his will. The idea of God, in effect, forcing people to believe on him is reprehensible to genuine love, in my opinion, and, uh, and goodness. And the very argument, to me, is really repulsive. Uh, and, and, and Calvinism is, is probably growing as much or more than the Arminius views in today's uh, uh, Christian educational cycles. And so we have Calvinism just proliferating with this high ivory tower intellectualism that talks about all these theories within Calvinism. But man, it just com completely destroys, in my opinion, the notion of a loving God who gives freedom. However, God is relentless. He is relentless and he is victorious. Put it this way, pretend we're all giant boulders, okay? The humble, the truth seekers, the non-proud, one drop of God's truth falls on that boulder and we break in two. We are open to him, to learn from him and do his will. But some of those boulders, he's gonna drip and he's gonna drip and it's gonna drip and drip and drip. And it's gonna drip some, for some of them into hell. It's gonna drip for some of them to the great white throne judgment. It's gonna drip on some of them in the lake of fire, which is in the presence of, of Jesus and the holy angels. And in the end, everyone will crack open and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Lord. Some to great reward as co-joint heirs with Christ and some to, to I don't know what, okay? So God will have his way. Finally, once saved, always saved. This last one is paradoxical. Um, it's tough because the solution is quite paradoxical. So let's approach it from the in indisputable points and then finish up here with uh, the more nuanced points, as it were. First, we cannot lose our salvation. We don't lose it by an action of faithlessness, sin, failure. It's impossible because we all sin daily in our flesh. Our, 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 our walk with Christ is not like this, where he's like, uh-oh, now you're in bad. Okay, now you're good, now, baloney. We are his. He says, you, no one can snatch anybody, his sheep, out of his hand or his father's hand. That is secure. But the thing we do have to say is, how is a person saved? The scripture says, we are saved by grace through faith. I am certain that a person can say no to faith. They can have faith and they can turn from that faith for all kinds of reasons scripture points out. Sometimes it's sin, sometimes it's, it's belligerence, sometimes it's they get tired, sometimes the, the world, sometimes they get caught up in worldly things, whatever it is, Jesus gives the parable of the sword, describes it. And there are people who will walk from their faith. They will say, I'm not gonna pursue it anymore. 
And without faith, there is no Christianity. And without Christianity, there's no salvation without Christ. It's all predicated on faith, which is why the writer of Hebrews focuses so much on faith. So I would suggest that without faith, there's no Christianity. Faith can be forfeited. Scripture seems to suggest that this is possible in a number of different ways. We have to ask, what are we saved from as believers? We are saved from sin and we are saved from the second death. So um, I would suggest that um, that can be forfeited and walked away from. However, here's the paradoxical part. God wins in the end. So I do believe he will come around and bring all back. But those who are in faith here in this life are gonna be rewarded as joint heirs with Christ as they pursue through faith and trial. And those who reject that or never come to faith will come back out with a different reward. There's one last thing I wanna cover here. And this is the tulip. The Calvin, Calvinists call it tulip. That's the acronym for these different stages. And uh, I wanna uh, suggest to you I'm gonna add one more to the end. And that's going to be, uh, I'm just gonna add an R to it and, uh, and tell you what that stands for now. The first one's insensate nature. The second one is foreknown election. The third one is universal atonement. So we have the U. The next one is resistible grace. The next one is perseverance of the faithful, and the last one is reconciliation of all things. In the Mormon Christian debate, we'll wrap it up here. We'll open up the phone lines, 801, it's gone. 801-590-8413. In the Mormon Christian debate, TULIP is absolutely unconscionable. You will not have a, a thinking Mormon come out and say, yeah, tulip, I embrace it. It's not going to happen. That's what Joseph Smith fought against. And while Arminianism is much closer to the biblical reasonable ideal, it's lacking be, since God in the end created all men knowing most would end up burning in hell forever and ever. And that completely, this is one of the reasons Joseph Smith concocted his fables about there being different kingdoms and different levels of heaven and everybody going to a heaven except the worst uh, fighters against the faith. So Arminianism really isn't gonna answer uh, the, the LDS question about salvation. I don't know how a Christian can stand by these points really logically and look at everything and say, yeah, I believe that God knew everything. He gives people free will and almost all are going to choose to go and burn in hell forever and ever and ever once they die. Or, uh, or the Calvinist view, the same. So the conclusion is taking God's omnipotence, his sovereignty into account, the fact that in order for God to be deemed good, he must be all good. He has to be fair, just, merciful, sound, wise then we have to believe that somehow he is both sovereign, he's victorious over all things, and somehow by his foreknowledge, he incorporates man's free will into the occasion, into the equation. And being the Bible says Jesus suffered for the sins of the whole world, the only way to interpret this fact in with the above is to believe not only, not one bit, of his son's pain is going to be wasted, not one bit. Or, it, or if it is, then it was fruitless. 
but that he will ultimately be victorious over all and he will harvest true sons and daughters. He will harvest recalcitrant believers. He will harvest rebellious souls and he will harvest the most evil of evil. All to their, hey, look it, there's the, there's the uh, law of the harvest. You're gonna reap what you sow. Do not kid yourself, Paul says. Don't kid yourself. You'll reap what you sow. So we go back to that model of, of walking with Jesus and the man and getting down to this end and, and, and diminishing in the flesh and growing in the spirit. That's the biblical uh, model of Christianity. And that's gonna wrap up our, our five or six or seven part series on soteriology. And next week, we're gonna open up to some new stuff. Phone number 801-590-8413. And while the operators are clearing any calls we might get, take a look at this. Okay, uh, this is from Gail. It says, Sean, your hair looks normal now. Are you okay? Um, I am not okay. When the hair goes normal, that's the worst sign of mental decay in my life. And, uh, and so pray for me. And uh, she ends it with, have a wonderful summer, dude. And I say thank you. This is from Raymond. I have watched your program from time to time and appreciate some of the things you have to say and for clearing up and educating us on the Mormon beliefs. On one of your programs, you mentioned that some of the top evangelical leaders teaming up with Mormon leaders to form unity of the faith. When I heard you mention this, it really struck a nerve with me. I have searched everywhere and looked for information on the collaboration and can't see uh, anything referencing it. Okay, I'm going to my memory. I shouldn't have read this because I gotta go to my memory now. First of all, if you type in Bob Millett, from Brigham Young University, professor of uh, religious studies. You'll see that he does a tour around with a pastor, a, a reverend from this area, and uh, they've gone into Christian churches. I went and saw Bob Millett speak with this reverend uh, at one of the larger churches in uh, uh, Southern California, and uh, it was uh, pretty disgusting, uh, the things that Millett was able to get away with as a Latter-day Saint kind of uh, portraying uh, Mormonism as just, you know, we're just regular old Christian folk. Uh, and, and the reverend who was accompanying him didn't call him out on the carpet. Uh, I, I love the reverend, uh, brother in Christ. I'm not gonna mention his name. Everyone who knows and has been in Utah knows who he is. But he and Millet have gotten into Christian churches all over and done their dog and pony show and talked about things. And Millet is literally has the ability to just sit there and spout Mormonism in a very politically correct way where people aren't going to question whether they're Christian or not. I would suggest uh, that this is highly uh, politically motivated. It's uh, kind of this coming together with all of us ecumenically agreeing on the world needs saving. So we're gonna fight homosexuality and we're gonna fight abortion and we're gonna fight drunkenness and we're gonna fight adultery and we're gonna fight all of these social ills, which are terrible social ills, and we're going to agree to disagree on the little nuances of doctrine. And uh, I absolutely think it's a mistake. 
And I think uh, Mormonism wins whenever we join hands with them to fight social ills. But I've made that perfectly clear when Romney was running for office. And I think uh, the Christian church, evangelicals made a big mistake in getting behind any Latter-day Saint as a uh, political uh, um, candidate because when a candidate in Mormonism is elected, Mormonism wins. And they have a, an agenda that dates back to Joseph Smith that is over, and you're gonna think I'm nuts, but it's written down, they believe it, and it's about world domination. And they have their, they have their language centers out there in the world where they learn all the language. They're in the CIA, they're in the FBI. They have their temple-centered headquarters everywhere. They're powerful, they're extremely wealthy. They're very political, they're extremely right-wing. They're very pro-family. And so we see the evangelical com community and we see focus on the family. And we see these other uh, talking heads on TV saying, yes, you know, we don't agree on everything, but..." By golly, let's join hands with them. And it's a serious mistake. It's a, it's a mistake. Uh, we're gonna see more of it, but it does happen. Um, and one other thing, here in Utah, and this is where I can't pull from, uh, there's a board of governors, and for the first time in its history, they gathered together in Utah to discuss Christian matters. And they had an, an LDS apostle come and visit that uh, gathering, and uh, I've, I reported on it a while ago, but I can't remember the details. If I can remember that, uh, Janet will get back to you. From Bill B. on barges. In the Book of Mormon, it's, it's a really great tale. Um, Joseph Smith in the Book of Ether, in the Book of Mormon, the last, one of the last books of the, of the Book of Mormon, he talks about a man named the, uh, the brother of Jared, who wants to cross the seas from the Holy Land to the Americas. And God instructs the brother of Jared to build barges. Now, what these barges are described as in the Book of Mormon, it's one of the great comic relief, and it really is interesting, is they are like a submarine. And they are oval-shaped like a football, tight like unto a dish is what the Book of Mormon says, covered in animal skins. And they have a hole at the top and they have a hole at the bottom. And they go under the waves and the wind blew them to the Americas. And the people and the animals got inside these things and they traveled by the wind pushing them. Well, these are the barges that, that Bill is talking about. Well, what happens is the brother of Jared who creates these barges, this fictional character in the Book of Mormon, they get inside them, they say it's completely dark. And so God, the brother of Jared goes and he prays and God uh, sticks his finger down and the brother of Jared sees the finger of God touching stones and the stones are illuminated brightly and then God has the brother of Jared put them in the barges and they're what give them light as they cross across the sea in these barges made of animal skins. Okay, well, this is what Bill says. Just saw one of your webcasts covering the barges with the glowing crystals. I wondered if you were aware that such deck crystals were used on, were used on wooden ships to bring light below the deck. And we have, uh, oh, sorry. We, uh, and he gives a Wikipedia. You can look it up on Wikipedia, type in deck prism, all right? I have a reproduction of such a crystal that I got at Mystic Seaport many years ago. This would be one more of the items that Joseph Smith got from his environment. They had these crystals during his day and they put them on the boats uh, and the wooden ships to bring light below. 
And so this was one of the things that Joseph Smith took from his environment, and it says, as usual, he embellished it with his fertile imagination. I was involved in LDS online debates years ago. Uh, you can read some of my criticisms here. I eventually lost interest in the apologetics when I saw how little effect it had to true believing Mormons, and it really does. Instead, I became more interested in the psychology of why some people stay in the LDS church in the face of such overwhelming evidence of its fraudulent nature. That led me to do some reading on techniques on thought reform, and he gives us an example. Thanks, Bill B., a great thing. All right, we have Drew from Stamf uh, Stafford, Virginia, on line one. Drew, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how you doing, Sean? Doing well, how are you doing? I'm doing well myself. Um, I would like to say I, I agree with you on some of the points that you made tonight. I think I'm closer to an Arminius than anything else, but I differ from them as well. Um, I don't really think um, God is that unjust that he would condemn people because they were never given a chance. Yeah. And um, I think that there's a blanket of grace that goes over these people like a three-year-old cannot make a choice if they want to follow Jesus at all. Right. That, and, that, that's and, a refreshing step, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you, you don't really have, uh, have that same. It's the same thing with the aboriginals in Australia. They don't have a choice if they've never heard. Okay. Um, at the same time, that's why it makes it essential for you to do your job and me to evangelize people so that we can bring light into the world so that they can be saved. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure if, if everybody will be reconciled, but I do know that the scripture says that it's not God's will that any should perish or any should be lost. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure where to stand on it. We both could be completely wrong. Yeah. Well, I agree with you completely in sharing, Drew, because in sharing, we are helping bring uh, truth seekers to the light and they then accept Christ as their Lord and Savior and they become joint heirs with him as they follow him and that is such a beautiful great thing for the eternities but I have a question yes sir do you believe that God knows everything and knew everything before he created it yes okay do you believe that straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few be there that find it broad is the way to destruction Yes. Okay. Destruction, by the way, is a pulamai in the Greek, and it doesn't mean destroyed like as completely. But here's the question. If there isn't total reconciliation, what was God, what's the purpose, if he knew that straight is the gate, narrow is the way, few be there that find it, to let this world go on and on, and many people populate and 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 and, and all, and most of them are going to hell forever. What, what, what? I, I can't answer you, Sean. I, I really can't. This is, uh, I'm a human being that's very limited in my understanding. Well, so am I. I. I mean, I, fu I fully believe that everybody is giving a choice, and if they're not, then they already have grace. God already accounted for them. I, 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 that's the best I can come up with. I'm not a theologian. Yeah. Well, these things, these things plague me. They, they really do, and, and because they're very important topics because we talk about God being love, we talk about him being sovereign, we talk about him knowing all things, we talk about him, hey look at 1 Corinthians, let me ask you this. We know in 1 John it says God is love. 1 Corinthians says love never fails. Yes. Love is long suffering, 
But we are picturing a God who stops his long suffering, who stops and he says, you've, given, you've been given a 25 year period on earth, you're killed in an accident, you didn't choose me, you had a choice, the spirit was calling to you, you're in hell forever and ever and ever. Does that seem just? Well, the people choose that. It's, it's not God just taking them and throwing them into a pit. They choose that on themselves. Do you think they are really, like Socrates said, it, we only sin in ignorance. If we knew the outcome, we would never make the choice. Do you think people are saying, I want to spend eternity in a literal hell of burning fire? No, I don't think people uh, think of that. I think many people try to rationalize their life and um, equate sin as being not so bad. We see that a lot in our culture. And um, they don't equate what they're doing as necessarily being bad. It could be their ignorance. I mean, I'm, I, as I said, I, I believe in a just and loving God. I don't okay. know. I could, I could be totally wrong on the subject. But, I mean, from my understanding, you know, narrow, narrow is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. I don't know. I, I would agree with that. that. I think most are gonna go to hell. Most will make visits to the lake of fire, but I just have a hard time believing that, that it's punitive in nature forever and ever, especially if there's justice involved. I, I mean, if a man, let's say a man, he lives his whole life, he rejects the Holy Spirit that's telling him to believe in Christ. He's, he's lived a fairly good life without that much terrible sin, but he has sin and he dies. A just God would say, okay, you're gonna, Jesus said you go in and you pay until the uttermost farthing before you get out. That's what he said, your payment is limited. If it's not limited, then to me it's an unjust punishment unless I've got something wrong. Well, well see, um, I, I'm sure you understand all, all these, uh, these concepts, like you have uh, Hades. My understanding of Hades is it's divided up into two different places. You have paradise and you have the outer darkness, or you can call, call it Tataros or, or whatever, and then you have paradise. And my, my understanding is that Jesus went down to the paradise part and pulled everybody out. Um, at the end, end times, he is going to take everybody from death and Hades and judge them to see if their name's in that book of life. All right. So I, I, I mean, I, I don't know, Sean. I, I'm just going by what, what I've read in Scripture. I know. Keep watching, we're gonna get to end times. That's gonna come up and we're gonna address many of the things scripture says about end times. I think it'll be revelatory to you, Drew. Thanks for watching. Hey, if you, if you could do, do something about those different parts of hell, because they're uh, they different things, Tartarus and Hades and all these different things and try to explain them, that would be helpful as well. We will be explaining those in detail, my brother. Okay, well, thank you very much, sir. Okay, God bless you. You too. Bye-bye. Listen, we love you. Uh, keep thinking. I'm not right on a lot of things. I'm just a man. I, I make wrong assumptions. You've seen enough of them on the show if you've been watching for the past years. But think and go to God and open up your scripture and search and let's try to figure this out together and let's cast off anything that is not biblical. That's all I'm asking. It's let's take stuff that's not biblical and throw it away. We're gonna be talking about end times, hell, and all that stuff in the coming weeks and months. We love you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Good job. I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind.
This man's awake A storm's arising The dawn's awaiting Till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the 